We've been studying together on Sunday mornings in the book of 1 Timothy, and I'd like tonight to bring at least one piece of that series over to a Wednesday evening. So let me invite you to turn with me now once again to the book of 1 Timothy and to the third chapter where we'll begin reading tonight in verse 8. 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 through 13. Paul writes, Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, thank you for the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And thank you for the church that you have placed into the world to uphold, to propagate, to teach, to live out that faith. And as I open up this passage and as we hear about another aspect of what the church should be like, and what the church members, and in this case deacons, should be like, God, I pray that we be strengthened so that this church will more and more uphold the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. Deacons likewise. That's how Paul begins this new paragraph and these instructions on church life written down and mailed off to his young protege, Timothy. Deacons likewise. And that word likewise clues us in that what Paul is about to write to Timothy about the deacons in the local church is similar to what he has just finished writing to him concerning the qualifications for the elders. There are two offices in the New Testament church, elder and deacon, and the men in those offices play two different roles in the local congregation. But what is the same about both offices, Paul is informing Timothy, is that you can't just appoint anybody. There are qualifications that a person must meet before being placed in church office. That is so for the elders we saw in verses 1 through 7, and for deacons likewise in verses 8 through 13. And indeed, as we work our way through this text tonight, we will see that many of the qualifications for the two offices are basically the same. Elders in verses 1 through 7 are to be above reproach, not addicted to wine, husbands of one wife, faithful in the management of their households, and deacons likewise are to be the same sorts of men in verses 8 through 13. Paul says some of the very same things. And even when the qualifications are not exactly the same, there is a common thread that runs through both of these paragraphs, namely that the men who hold office in God's church, the men who lead the bride of Christ, must be men of character. And so there's much that's very similar from Sunday to tonight, much that overlaps between verses 1 through 7 and now verses 8 through 13. But before we go any further, what is the difference? 
What's the difference? I don't mean what is the difference between these two sets of qualifications, but what is the difference in essence between elders and deacons in general? That'll help us to understand who these deacons are that we're considering tonight. So what's the difference? Well, we've just been saying that there isn't a great deal of difference in the character qualities that are required in both sets of men, but there is a difference, the New Testament teaches us, in the roles the two sets of men play. On the one hand, the elders or overseers, as Paul calls them in verse 1, are more directly involved in spiritual leadership, in teaching God's word, in defending the flock from false doctrine, in restoring souls through counsel and spiritual encouragement. The elders, to put it simply, minister primarily to the soul. And yet the people of God are not made up only of souls, are they? We're all walking around or tonight sitting down in physical bodies too, aren't we? And those bodies have needs as well. Food, shelter, clothing, pews to sit on on a Wednesday night, parking lots on which to park our cars, and so on. And God has ordained that the church set aside godly men, not only who can look after the needs of the soul, but godly men also who can look after the needs of our body, our physical Needs And so while the elders primarily look after the spiritual welfare of the flock, the deacons primarily manage physical and temporal matters. The building and grounds, the church budget, the benevolence ministry, the fellowship meals, accommodations for worship, and so on. Now we see this division of labors most clearly in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. And you may remember the backdrop there. The church in Jerusalem was doing a good thing. They were providing a Meals on Wheels ministry, if you will, for the widows in the church. That's a good thing. That's a right thing. But somewhere along the line, there was a breakdown, and the food wasn't being distributed as equitably as it ought to have been. And so there had to be some reorganizing. And what did the apostles, who were functioning as the elders in the Jerusalem church, what did the apostles decide to do about this problem? Well, they created the office of deacon. They urged the church to select from among themselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who could be put in charge of this very physical aspect of ministry, the distribution of benevolence. And the reason for creating the office of deacon was really twofold, because there was indeed this temporal ministry that needed to be properly tended to. That was one thing, but also alongside that, the Apostles created this office because they realized that they, as the spiritual leaders in the church, needed to focus their time and attention on other things. They needed to be able to focus on meeting the needs of the soul. And so to make sure that the physical needs of the people were cared for and also to ensure that they themselves had the time they needed for prayer and the ministry of the word, the apostles instituted the office of deacon. In the local church. And let me just, in fact, read to you the passage. Acts 6, verses 1 through 6. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So there you have the creation of the office of deacon, and also you have a good summary of why the office exists, to care for the temporal needs of the church alongside the elders who will then devote themselves to meeting the spiritual needs. Now, that separation of duties is not always hard and fast. This is not to say that deacons should never lead out in the ministry of the word because we see two of these first seven deacons, both Philip and Stephen, doing just that in the next few chapters of Acts. Nor are we saying that the elder can never drop off a bag of groceries or give a ride to someone to church or help with the yard work. In fact, when he does that, it's a good reminder to him that he is simply a member of the family too in many ways. And yet... The elders of the church mustn't major on such things. They must devote themselves primarily to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so, praise God for deacons, right? Who lead out in all of these important temporal ministries so that the elders can focus their attention on the needs of the soul. Praise God for men who are willing to be servants, which is what the word deacon really means. We've brought the word deacon over as a transliteration from the Greek word diakonos, But what diakonos means in plain English is simply servant. And so I say again, praise God for men who are willing to be servants, who are willing to be deacons of the church. But what sorts of men ought they be? We just read one list of qualifications in Acts chapter 6, didn't we? Select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit, and of wisdom. So they have to be trustworthy men, men of the sort of reputation that leads you to believe that they can be entrusted with the money to go out and buy the widow's bread, or in our case, with all sorts of other decisions regarding the church's money and assets and so on. Men of good reputation. Also, men of wisdom, who not only have the character to undertake such tasks, but also the know-how, the competence, the wisdom to get the job done. And then notice also that the apostles stipulated that even though their work is not always directly spiritual, nevertheless, the men themselves must be spiritual men, men of God, men who walk with the Lord, full of the Spirit, Acts chapter 6. So there's one brief list of deacon qualifications. And then Paul expounds on it here in 1 Timothy 3. And as we prepare to look at what he says, it will be good to remind you, as I did with the qualifications for elders on Sunday, that this passage has application not only to the deacons who are sitting in the room tonight, but to us all. Now, obviously, the first layer of application tonight will be to Scott and Scott and Steve and Gary and Mark, who are our deacons. So listen well, men. But they're not the only ones who need to listen well tonight. Because some of the rest of you may someday be called upon to be deacons. 
And you need to be ready to serve God's church when that time comes by striving to be the sorts of men that Paul describes in these verses. And even if you're never to be a deacon in Christ's church, this passage still applies to you just in the same way as the one on Sunday applied to you because you need to pray for your deacons that they'll be the men that God has called them to be. And this passage will show you how to pray. And you may be called upon to hold them accountable to being the sort of men they ought to be. And this passage will know you to what, show you to what you should hold them accountable. And because the example in Acts 6 is that the congregation selects the deacons who will serve in their midst. And so you, the congregation, must know what kinds of men you ought to select when the time comes. And then further, by way of application, Paul is also going to interject a sentence in verse 11 that must be applied by certain women in the congregation tonight specifically. And so we all have reason to listen tonight. And then let's remember, too, what Don Carson said about the qualification for elders, namely that what is so remarkable about the qualifications for elders is that they are actually quite unremarkable. In other words, God is not, for the most part, asking the elders to exhibit character traits that are really any different from those that every Christian ought to strive for. There are two or three above and beyond sorts of items in that list in verses 1 through 7, but much of what is set down in those verses as qualifications for elders are items of character that are relevant for every Christian. Respectability, hospitality, prudence, sobriety, contentment, peaceability, and so on. The elders are to be examples in these things, perhaps to excel in them even more than the typical church member, but they are, for the most part, called to the same moral and ethical standards as are expected of all Christians. And tonight I say to you that we can say the same thing about the deacon qualifications in verses 8 through 13. Paul is writing these words, yes, specifically for deacons, but so much of what he asks of these men are the same sorts of things that are expected of us all. And so there's another potential point of application for you tonight. While we're thinking directly about what sorts of people the deacons ought to be, you might also secondarily be measuring yourself against this same biblical yardstick. So with all that said, and now without any further ado, let's dive headfirst into another list of qualifications. What sort of men ought deacons be? Well, first of all, men of dignity, verse 8 Men of dignity, men who carry themselves with class and with character, men whose bearing in speech, in business, in family, in friendships, in finances, in care for the property that God has entrusted to them, men who show themselves to be reverent in all these things, as the New King James puts it, reverent toward their God and King, dignified before their fellow men, someone that everybody can look to and think well of. Examples to the rest of the flock and to the watching world of what a Christian man is supposed to look like. Men of dignity. And then also, Paul says that they are to be not double-tongued, or as we would perhaps say it, men who don't talk out of both sides of their mouths. Deacons must be men whose word can be trusted, whose word can be taken seriously, And at face value, their yes must be yes, and their no must be no. Not double-tongued. Or addicted to much wine. 
Now, again, Paul does not prohibit wine altogether, but he's clear that the leaders in the church, whether elders in verse 3 or deacons in verse 8, the leaders in the church must not be addicted to wine or, by implication, to beer or spirits or anything else. Deacons must not have a drinking problem. And neither at the end of verse 8 can they have a problem with sordid or ill-gotten gain, with financial dishonesty, in other words. I hope you can see why this would be important for the deacons. Not only because the testimony such behavior gives to the outside world is horrific for what we want to give as a picture of Christianity, but also because the role of the deacon very often is going to entail precisely handling money or assets on behalf of the church. Stephen and Philip and Prochorus and the others were toting large amounts of food around the city of Jerusalem and perhaps significant amounts of money that were needed to purchase that food. And so they couldn't be the kind of men about whom there was any question regarding their financial integrity. And the same is true of our deacons who handle our benevolence funds and make financial decisions and put together with the elders the budget and review job bids and so on. Men entrusted with these tasks simply cannot be questionable financially. They cannot be fond of sordid gain. But rather, verse 9, rather than grasping for dirty money, deacons must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, there are two things there. First, deacons must hold to the mystery of the faith, which means that they must understand the Christian faith and that they must earnestly believe it. In other words, what Paul is saying is deacons must be theologically sound. They may not need the depth of knowledge that's required by the elders, but they still need to be firmly rooted in the truths of the Christian faith, holding to the mystery of the faith, and then doing so in the second place with a clear conscience, which may have reference back to verse 8 and the qualifications made there, or which may refer to having a clear conscience about whether or not I actually believe what I say I believe. In other words, what Paul may be saying in the second half of verse 9 is that it's not enough to be theologically sound if you're secretly harboring the sins that he's just mentioned in verse 8, if you don't have a clear conscience about your behavior. Or alternatively, he may mean that a deacon must be theologically sound not only in his outward profession of faith, but that he must also really believe the faith in his heart of hearts. That's not to say he can never have any doubts, but it is to say that a deacon cannot be a hypocrite claiming to believe things which he actually does not. So holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then listen to verse 10. These men must also first be tested. Then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Now there's that same idea that we considered on Sunday. Beyond reproach or above reproach as Paul puts it in verse 2. Which doesn't mean that deacons and elders are perfect men, but which does mean that they ought to have a rein on their sins to such an extent that the target on their backs is very small and the chinks in their armor are very few. Now, one way in which that's accomplished, probably the most obvious way, is simply by means of avoiding sin. It's hard for people to reproach you. It's hard for them to pinpoint their arrows of accusation against you when they don't see very many examples of you acting sinfully, 
And yet all of us are going to sin, are we not? And we're all going to sin in front of other people sometimes. And so it seems to me that another secondary way of being beyond reproach is if when we do sin, we're humble about it. We're ready to own what we did, willing to make full confession with no caveats, no strings attached, and willing to ask forgiveness of those we've hurt. Because you see, it's one thing if we do something wrong or if we do something foolish. Some people will reproach us for that, but the reproach will pile on much more heavily and ruin much more gravely our reputation and the reputation of the church and the reputation of our God much more when we sin and are unwilling to fess up or to own the consequences or to seek forgiveness. So let me use an example that may rankle a few of you. It's one thing to see evidence this week that Pete Rose bet on baseball while he was still playing the game and that he bet on his own team while he was still playing the game. That may knock him down a peg or two in many people's minds. But what is really doing Pete Rose in at this point is that he's been lying about it for all these years. He wouldn't be above reproach anyway because of what he did, but now he's even far more liable to reproach because he wouldn't come clean. And so let that be a lesson to us all about what it means to be beyond reproach. It's best when we don't stumble into sin in the first place. But we can ameliorate a lot of the reproach if we will just come clean and admit what we did and seek forgiveness. So Paul says, let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And note that he says that they must be tested in this area, which probably means that they are to be observed over a period of time to see if they really are the sort of men who ought to be officers in the church. Now, maybe sometimes that period of testing is official in some churches, such that a man is announced as a potential deacon, but then placed under a period of trial or probation before being officially added to the group. But very often this testing will be unofficial, as the congregation and its leaders get to know men over a period of time before considering them to be added to the diaconate. But either way, the idea is that we must not lay hands on men too hastily, as Paul reiterates over in chapter 5. So these men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And then in verse 12, deacons are to be husbands of only one wife, which, as we saw on Sunday, not only means that they cannot be polygamous, but also that they cannot be adulterers and should not even be found in mental or emotional affairs, affairs either. And then additionally, as I also said on Sunday, Paul may have in mind that divorce and remarriage prohibits a man from serving as an elder or deacon as well. But again, the main idea of all these things is that if the church is the bride of Christ, and if Jesus loved her and gave himself up for her, and if Jesus will never cast out his bride, then the men of God who lead in his church must treat their own brides with the same faithfulness as Jesus. And then also, like the elders, deacons must be, verse 12, be good managers of their children and their own households. Elders and deacons cannot have children or wives whose behavior totally discredits their ministries. 
Now, as I said on Sunday, I think this is particularly in reference to children who are still at home and under the Father's roof and daily authority. Neither an elder nor a deacon can serve faithfully if the behavior of his wife or the behavior of his at-home children places a constant question mark over whether or not he is a willing and capable spiritual leader in his home. Now, that doesn't mean that the wife and kids have to be perfect any more than the husband and father, nor does it even mean, I don't think, that there may not sometimes be significant issues with a man's wife or his children that have to be worked through even while he remains in office as an elder or a deacon. But it probably does mean that some issues are serious enough, some situations can be far enough out of control that the man should step down, at least for a season, so as to rein in uh, his family and to bring order and peace to his home. And the test when the familiar issues are less serious but still present may not always be that the husband or father can immediately command obedience. But is he working out a solution? Is he committed to making progress? Is he showing real leadership of his family in the midst of the problems, even if they're not quite responding the way you'd like to see them do? Or is he just setting things to the side and letting them slide? If it's the former, if he's doing his best and making some progress, in most cases he probably needs to press on in his office so long as efforts are being made. But if it's the latter, if he's not even taking the responsibility, he's not fulfilling the basic role of a Christian husband or father and should no longer be a leader in the church. So then, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. Now then, you may have noticed that we hopped over verse 11. And if you look at that verse, you'll probably understand why I've saved it till now, because verse 11 is a kind of parentheses. Paul, in verses 8 through 10, is speaking about a group of people whom he evidently expects to be males. And then in verse 12, he's clearly speaking about males because he talks about their being husbands. But in verse 11, he sidetracks for a moment and has a few brief words to say to women. And the $5,000 question is, what sort of women is he talking about? Is Paul talking about women who happen to be married to the men he's addressing in the other verses? Or is he talking about women who serve alongside the men as female deacons, deaconesses, as they're usually called? Or is Paul referring, as William Hendrickson and Donald Guthrie suggest, to women who are not deacons themselves, nor necessarily deacons' wives, but women who served as deacons' assistants? Perhaps particularly, Guthrie suggests, in ministries like visitation and preparing people for baptism, in which having women serving other women would have been the proper thing to do. Who's Paul talking about here? Well, let me say first that in spite of what you may have always heard or believed, there are conservative Bible-believing Christians who hold the second opinion that Paul is referring to women deacons. Now, I'm not among those people who believe that, but because this can sometimes be a point of contention, I think unnecessarily, let me just briefly explain how people land in that spot. First of all, note that the word for women here is generic. Some of your translations may translate it as wives, but the Greek word gynaikos, from which we get our word gynecology, is a generic word. It can mean wife or it can just mean woman, depending on the context. 
And so some translations bring it across here as wives in verse 12, but that's not the only possible translation. Paul may not be referring to wives, but simply to women, perhaps to women whom he expected to serve alongside the deacons as assistants, but not as deacons themselves, or perhaps to women whom he expected to actually serve as deacons. Couple that with the fact that Phoebe in Romans 16.1 is referred to using a form of the same Greek word for deacon, and you can see why some Bible-believing people believe that the office of deaconess is a biblical one. They're not all feminists or liberals. Rather, many of them are Bible-believing Christians simply trying to understand the New Testament text. And so while I don't think they've hit upon the best way to understand this passage, I do understand how some people with a high view of Scripture arrive at the conclusion that Paul's talking about deaconesses here. That conclusion by itself is not a sign that someone is liberal or feminist. So why are some Christians up in arms about the idea of deaconesses? Why, when someone does say that they think that's what this means, do some Christians get very upset about it? Well, I think some of the problem at least stems from the fact that in many churches, and especially in many Baptist churches, the deacons function in roles that rightly belong to the elders. In other words, many Baptist churches don't have any concept of elders beyond the paid pastoral staff. And so the deacons function alongside the staff as the de facto spiritual leaders, the de facto elders, shepherding the flock, exercising oversight, preaching in the pastor's absence, and so on. And if that's how deacons are functioning in a local church, if the deacons are teaching the men, and if they are the body of spiritual authority in the church, then you can see why many people are alarmed when they hear about women deacons. I would be alarmed too in a church where the deacons serve as de facto elders. Because to have a woman deacon in a church where the deacons are functioning like elders would be to contradict what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 12. I do not allow a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. But in a church where the elders uh, are the spiritual leaders and the elders are the teachers and the elders are the ones invested with spiritual authority and where the deacons are primarily servants and not teachers and not the leaders, well, then I can see no reason to panic if a church has women deacons, even if I myself am not sure that they've adopted the best interpretation of this passage. And yet in saying all that, the deaconess position is not the one which I'm most comfortable with because while our deacons don't function as de facto elders, we do place some burden of leadership and authority in the hands of our deacons, especially in the realm of the church's finances and also in some of their other more specific roles. So just one for instance, we've given Scott some authority and leadership over what happens with the music and over the team of people who make it and even in this public gathering as he leads us out on Sunday mornings and Wednesday night. That's a deacon role in our church, but it involves authority. And because it does, 1 Timothy 2.12 tells me that the deacon over that role should be a male. And I imagine there are similar cases in many churches, even churches like ours, that recognize the distinction between elder and deacons. Deacons may not usually be the teachers, but they are often given authority, which means chapter 2, verse 12 that the deacon office is probably meant to be populated by males. But what about Phoebe in Romans 16? Well, remember I told you that the Greek word for deacon 
by which she is called, literally means servant. So while it's possible that Paul in Romans 16.1 is intending to refer to Phoebe as an official servant, as a deaconess, it's just as possible, and I think more likely given what I've just told you, that he's simply calling her a servant in the general sense of the word. She served her home church in the city of Sancria. And so I think at the end of all that, 1 Timothy 3.11 is probably making reference not to the office of deaconess, but either to deacons' wives or to the faithful women in the church who come alongside the deacons and assist them with their duties that are perhaps better performed by women, but who are not deacons themselves. And yet I do take time to give you the other side of the coin because I want you to understand that this ought not to be a fighting issue especially in churches that understand the differing roles between deacon and elder. There are churches who hold just as strongly as we do to the authority of the scriptures, just as strongly as we do that women should not teach or exercise authority over a man, but who have arranged their policy in such a way that they have deaconesses who do neither of those things. And we don't need to draw battle lines on this issue, it seems to me. With all that said, I'm going now to teach this verse as having reference Not to women who are deacons, but women who are regular members and attenders of the church and who assist the leaders of the church by performing various tasks under the leadership of the elders and deacons. Women who visit other women, women who organize meals, women who look after the nursery, women who are on the worship team, and on and on the list could go. So as to encompass actually the vast majority of the women here at Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church. Some of these women are deacons or elders' wives, and many of them are not. But in either case, the fact that Paul mentions these women in this context, mentions women like many of you in this context, shows us two things, at least. First, that women have crucial roles to play and crucial ministries to perform in the local church. Just because women are not going to be set aside as elders or as deacons does not mean that they cannot be servants and indeed play an important enough part that Paul mentions them here amidst the deacons as needing to possess a godly character of their own in order to perform their roles appropriately. And that godly character is really the second thing to notice here. Even those who are not in leadership, Even these women who are not elders and not deacons need to be people of character and godliness if they're going to serve in Christ's church. So what does Paul say about the deacons' wives and or about the women who assisted the deacons with their work? Well, first of all, they should be dignified, just like the deacons, carrying themselves with class and character. And then along the same lines, I think Paul specifically warns about gossip, to which some women are prone as it is, and which is perhaps all the more tempting to the wives of deacons and elders, because often the wives of deacons and elders know more about what's going on behind the scenes than the average woman in the church does. The deacons' wives may often know who's receiving benevolence or who's in financial trouble, and the elders' wives may often know who's in counseling or who's under discipline or whose marriage is in difficulty or whose kids are having behavioral issues. And so will many other women who may be assisting with some of those particular issues. And whoever they are, Paul says they can't be big mouths about it. But rather they must be temperate. 
verse 11. Self-controlled, in other words, having a bridle on their tongues, their appetites, their passions, their emotions, their spending habits. Temperate, not always carried away by rash decisions, emotions, and passions. And then this summary statement at the end of verse 11 concerning these women, faithful in all things, faithful as mothers, faithful to their husbands, faithful to pay their bills, faithful in their roles of service in the church, faithful in their giving to the church, faithful to their friends, faithful in terms of the kind of modesty that Paul described in chapter 2, faithful to the distinctions he outlined in that same chapter between the roles of men and women. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. But now in verse 13, back to the men, back to the deacons themselves. What does all this amount to? What is the reward for being a faithful deacon in God's church? Well, listen to what Paul says, verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what does that mean? It almost might sound to some of our ears like Paul is advocating some sort of merit system, which the gospel of grace has taught us to reject. We might read verse 13 and almost think that Paul is saying that if you're a deacon and if you're a good deacon, well, then you can earn just a little more favor with God than the average Christian will probably do. But surely Paul can't be saying that. This is the apostle who has taught us so much about justification by faith and not by our works. This is the apostle that has taught us that we are accounted fully and completely righteous in God's courtroom, not on the basis of our own merits, but solely on the basis of faith in the merits of Jesus Christ. Indeed, this is the apostle who has taught us that when we trust him, we are credited with the very righteousness of Jesus himself. And if God has already declared us to have the righteousness of Christ, well, then we can't get any more righteous in his sight than that, can we? We can't be any more justified than we were at the very first instant that we believed on Jesus. And that's good news tonight. If you belong to God through Christ, if your faith is in the person and work of Jesus, then you will never be any more or any less righteous in God's sight, any more justified or any less justified than you are right now or than you were at the very outset of your faith. And so when Paul talks in verse 13 about deacons achieving a high standing and great confidence based on how well they serve, he cannot be referring to our standing of right relationship with God. And he cannot be saying that by serving well in the church, we can have more confidence in God's love for us. These are things that are as unchanging as the one with whose blood they were bought. So what is Paul talking about? If being a deacon does not improve one's standing with God or give one more confidence in God's love, what does Paul mean? Well, I think in the first instance, he must be talking not about justification, but about reward. 
Paul's words about high standing must be his way of saying that deacons who serve well will have great reward, great crowns someday to lay at Jesus' feet. This is the high standing that is affected by our service to the king, not our relationship with God, but our reward from God. And then the confidence that deacons gain from serving well in the second part of the verse is not more confidence in God's love for them, which was proven once for all at the cross, but the confidence that they gain is more confidence that they really do love and trust him. And those are two different things, aren't they? God's love for us never changes, but our love for him can grow. And our confidence that we love him will grow the more we serve him and serve him well. And so while we must be careful to understand what verse 13 does not say, we mustn't empty it of its meaning either. It is saying something. And what it seems to be saying is that the more faithfully a deacon serves, the greater will be his heavenly reward and the greater will be his confidence that he really does love and trust Jesus. And while Paul is writing these things specifically about deacons, I think the same general principle applies to all of God's children. All of us who serve faithfully will be rewarded with crowns in heaven and with greater confidence in our own commitment to God here on earth. And those are two great incentives for every single one of us to serve the Lord well and to serve his church well, and especially for those of you who are deacons. And then before we finish tonight, let me give you one other incentive, deacons, for faithfully fulfilling the roles that God has allotted to you. And we'll find it back in Acts chapter 6, that passage that describes the very first team of deacons that was ever appointed in the church of Jesus Christ. So just turn there with me, if you will, as we finish to Acts chapter 6. And I want to read to you verses 1 through 7 this time. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, we've already looked at verses 1 through 6, haven't we? The apostles who were serving as the elders in the church in Jerusalem didn't need to be distracted from their labors in prayer and in God's word, and so the church appointed deacons to ease their burden. And that's wonderful to read about in and of itself. It's wonderful to see one set of men exercising their gifts so that another set of men can exercise their gifts so that neither the bodies nor the souls of the church in Jerusalem were overlooked. 
That's wonderful in and of itself. But what's really exciting to me is to see the upshot of that arrangement in verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. I don't think that verse 7 follows verses 1 through 6 by accident. I don't think it's an accident that after we read about this situation in which the apostles' capacity to minister to spiritual needs was threatened, and after we read how the deacons stood in the gap to make sure that the apostles could indeed devote themselves to prayer and to Bible work, I don't think that it's an accident after all of that that the very next thing we read is that the ministry of the word, which would have been curtailed had the apostles been forced to wait tables, that the ministry of the word now continued to flourish in Jerusalem. That's not an accident. What's happening here is that because the deacons did what they were supposed to do, the apostles and elders were able to do what they were supposed to do, and the result was that the word of God kept on spreading. You see what I'm saying here? Because the deacons were taking care of the temporal affairs, the apostles slash elders were freed up to keep on spreading the word, and people were being saved because of it. Because the deacons were being faithful to do what deacons do. And so you see that while I said earlier that the deacons primarily serve in temporal affairs of the church, it's not quite that simple. Because the temporal affairs of the church have spiritual implications. Always. Because not only are the elders freed up for prayer and Bible ministry when the deacons do what they do, But also when the deacons do what they do and when the women do what they do and the other servants in the church do what they do, well, then the widows are fed and the pantry is stocked and the water is handed out at the parade and a nursing mother enjoys hot meals from her church family and visitors get a card in the mail and guests are greeted warmly at the door and all of those things come alongside the preaching of the word and help speed it along by giving our listeners evidence that the gospel makes a difference in our lives. And when people's kids are well cared for in the nursery and the music is well prepared and the building and property are well maintained, these forms of temporal service provide an atmosphere in which people can undistractedly listen to that word. And so you see that Paul was right over in 1 Corinthians when he said that every part of Christ's body is vital. And your part is vital, whomever you are tonight. When you fulfill your role... The elders can fulfill their roles, and when you fulfill your role, your faithfulness helps make a place for God's word in the hearts and lives of people who need to hear it. And so there is no merely temporal work in the church of Jesus Christ. All of it is spiritual, because even the temporal things make way for the word of Christ. And don't you want people to hear the word of Christ? Don't you want the word to spread in our city? so that the number of disciples would increase greatly, and so that even some of the most unlikely people, just like the Jewish clergy in Acts 6, might come to know our Jesus? Don't you want your Jewish and Catholic neighbors to know the good news that we were rehearsing a few minutes ago? That if we have simple faith in the finished work of Jesus, we can never be any more right with God or any more loved by God than we are at this very moment, nor any less. Don't you want them to know that they can be justified by simple faith in Jesus alone? 
Well, then, yes, get out into the open like Stephen and Philip and share this good news far and wide. Don't think that you must only do the temporal things, but also don't forget how important those things are. The nursery, the piano playing, the fellowship meals, the care for old ladies, the food pantry, and so on. The deacons were men of character, and the deacons served tables. And because they did, the word of God kept on spreading.